0: If you're in Nashville, you know about Goo Goo Clusters. You may not buy one, but you know about them. It's marshmallow, caramel, peanuts, and milk chocolate. And it looks kinda like a hockey puck. I wanna say a cow pie, but that. <laughs> when I was in business school, I knew I wanted to work in, uh, in Nashville or in the Southeast and I had heard about Standard Candy. It it was kind of known around town that the company wasn't doing real well and they were looking for a way out. And my father had been active in the candy industry. I went and talked to the bank and said I'd I'd like to buy them and they laughed at me and kind of chuckled, but they didn't laugh at my dad. So he had gray hair he had experience in the industry. And they said, okay, we won't foreclose on the company um, while you're running it. We'll kind of stand back and look and see how it's, how it's doing. We've all heard about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. What about Jimmy? Hello, I'm Jimmy Spradley. I'm the founder and CEO of Standard Functional Foods Group and the CEO of Standard Candy Company, makers of Goo Goo Clusters.
1: From the Chase Studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, this is Circle Back, where we trace the life cycle of the startup from bright idea to big payoff. I'm your host, Clark Buckner.
0: I I think I was probably uh, 10 or 12, and I heard my father say, if you wanted to make money, go to work for somebody else. If you wanted to be wealthy, go to work for yourself. And so that's what I wanted to do. When I was 11 years old, we moved uh, to Eastman, Georgia, about 150 miles south of Atlanta, where my father was president of Stuckey's. You never heard of it yet. Pecan clusters, pecan log rolls, divinity, um, they were out in the middle of no place. Stuckeys was a candy company that started selling gas on the interstate and grew with the interstate. But it was a place where you could stop. They tried to have clean restrooms, they sold novelties. It was basically the first convenience store. It was kind of the forerunner of Cracker barrel. In the ninth grade, I started boarding school at Westminster in Atlanta didn 't know where I wanted to go to college. Um, Vanderbilt, I got waitlisted for uh, arts and sciences. I called them up and I said I really wanted to go They said well if you'll apply engineering, we'll let you in over the phone Uh, I said I'm there and it ended up being a great fit. I was pretty good in math And so Vanderbilt was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed my four years there. I went to work for Exxon as a project manager. I worked in um, in Memphis and Nashville and in Knoxville. I did a bunch of different projects. One was building a tank farm, changing leaking gas tanks at, at service stations from metal rusting tanks to fiberglass tanks. I didn't like that because everything was a book. You, you, if you wanted to do something, you went to the shelf, you got the book, you read the instructions, and then you went and did it. There was no creative thinking to the process.
1: Jimmy remembered what his dad had said about making money from someone else and working for yourself to become wealthy.
0: and I, he, It was a kind of an off-the-cuff thing he said, and it was a huge statement for me. And I knew I wanted to be in business, so I applied to business school and went to uh, University of Chicago Business School. So most people took three classes. I doubled up and took four classes and got out in a little over a year.
1: From there came a stint in real estate syndication.
0: Went to work for a company in Nashville, Jocks Miller. So they would buy apartments and they would break them up into pieces and sell the pieces for more than they uh, bought the complex for. At the time, everybody was looking for tax shelters and that's what Jocks Miller created, tax shelters.
1: But something sweeter was around the corner.
0: I found Standard Candy. So I sent a letter asking if could I come and talk to them about a job. They said the company wasn't doing very well and they weren't really didn't have enough money to pay me. So I kind of kept it in the back of my mind. The winter of 1981, they had a really rough time. Interest rates were real high and they wanted to get out.
1: When Jimmy got involved with Standard Candy, it was already an institution. Seventy years running in Nashville with the distinction of creating the first combination candy bar in America.
0: Standard Candy Company made Goo Goo Clusters and King Leo Stick Candy. During college, I had a friend that was from Nashville that really liked them. And I think I had one or two and, okay, this is pretty cool. The rest of the country learned about Goo Goo through jingles
1: and commercials on the Grand Ole Opry.
0: I think Standard Candy started advertising on the Grand Ole Opry around 1965, and I think they were the second oldest sponsor behind Martha White. G, Grand, Old, O, Opry, O, Goo. But no, the G O O does not stand for Grand Ole Opry. Goo Goo's were invented in 1912, and the Grand Ole Opry started in 1925. Hal Campbell, the originator of goo-goos, was riding the streetcar, and he'd given the, the people on the streetcar this candy, and they said, it's great, woman had her baby there, and Mr. Campbell said, well, what can the baby say? And she said, he can say, he, he say goo-goo. And, well, that's what we'll name our candy. Let's get back to 1982,
1: when opportunity presented itself.
0: The company moved to an industrial park. And when they moved, they were out of stock for about four months. And if you're out of stock, somebody's going to take that place on your shelf. At the same time, peanut prices went from about 30 cents a pound to over a dollar a pound if you could find them. There was a shortage of peanuts. And then on top of that, interest rates went, prime rate in 1982 got to, I think, 21%. And they had borrowed them a lot of money to make the move. So it was just a triple whammy and and they didn't know how to get out of where they were. There were two partners, one ran the business and the other one was a silent partner. The silent partner wanted to continue to be in the business the active partner, he was ready to get out. So we had a meeting. We met with the owners. They owed about $2.5 million. And so our strategy or plan was that we, we would buy the uh, managing partner out, and we would go to work there. We'll work for free for six months, and you'll own it. And at the end of six months, we get the right to buy our 50%. And our 50% was basically assuming the debt. So we, my dad started on March 15, 1982. Remember,
1: dad was a legit candy man who had run Stuckey's nationwide.
0: And uh, he wouldn't let me quit my job. He said, no, you stay at your job. Let me go in there and see if we can make a go of this thing before you quit and come to work. I came home at the end of May and said, Dad, I quit my job. I'm showing up tomorrow and we'll figure this thing out. So that's what we did. So we ended up owning half for assuming the the debt of the company. It was a lot of fun because we were able to turn the business around relatively quickly and start making a little bit of money. The candy industry is basically three major players. One is M&M Mars. Uh, another one is Hershey. And then the third guy was Nestle. And Nestle is a huge food company. And then after those three, it drops off substantially. And there are regional players, candy bars out there. Um, Rocky Road, uh, Charleston Chew. Every region had, had a little their own niche candy bar. I mean, Mars is the, I think, one of the top five privately held companies in the world. And they own Snickers, uh, Three Musketeers, Milky Way. They've got a stable of brands and they're in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And Goo was selling two million dollars at the time. Before the move, you would order it and you were lucky to get it. After the move, when they increased volume ten times, Uh, they they didn't get out and start selling product. Coons Big K was a department store in Middle Tennessee. There was about a hundred of them. They went broke in 1981. Well, they were Standard Candy's biggest customer. Walmart came in and bought those stores and rebranded them as Walmart and opened them back up. And the store managers for the old Big K Coons store said, when can we get Goo Goo's? Well, nobody called on Walmart. So, One of the first things we did was drive to Bentonville, call on Walmart, and they started selling goo-goos in a regional area. We called on Dollar General, um, Scottsville, Kentucky. It's an hour and 15 minutes from downtown Nashville. We called on them and sold them goo-goos. So we started calling on Walgreens and Super X, Kroger, uh, Winn-Dixie, just people that bought candy. We got to 10 million relatively quickly in about three years. The next thing we did is we bought the Stuckey's manufacturing facility. Stuckey's was, uh, was having a hard time. And Bill Stuckey, the son of the founder, he bought the name and the, right, the rights to the name. And we bought the manufacturing facilities in Eastman and agreed to make candy for those Stuckey stores. And we made candy for fundraising organizations. A kid will knock on your door and sell you a candy bar for a dollar. 50 cents of that would go to the school and 50 cents of that was what the product cost. So we made candy for fundraising uh, organizations. We made candy for Stucky stores. And then we started calling on other chains to make product for them. By 1995, The Spradleys owned the entire
1: company, and we're starting to look at the larger landscape.
0: We could generate sales, but we weren't very profitable. We weren't as profitable as we needed to be to fund the growth of the company. So we started looking around for what we could do, what what else could we do. And we were not very good marketing uh, our products, but we were good at following instructions. So we started getting into contract manufacturing, making product for other people. First, we started doing it for candy. We made uh, boxed chocolates for Nestle. Um, We made heart-shaped boxes for Valentine's Day. Um, We made payday bars for uh, Hershey. So we started making product for other people and that became relatively a consistent source of business, and it became pretty profitable. Jimmy's
1: engineering education was coming in handy.
0: We could figure out how to make it a little cheaper, a little faster, a little better, a little more efficient. That was what we were pretty good at. And then in the late 90s, we started seeing bars that were being sold for weight loss for nutritional, energy bars. A Snicker bar is two ounces, and it sells for 69 cents at Walmart at the time. Well, a one ounce SlimFast bar sold for $1.19 at at Walmart. So we said, okay, there's margin there. When we come back, you want it, we'll make it. SlimFast, Kellogg's, Atkins. The birth of standard functional foods. I'm Sam Davidson, CEO of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. For over 13 years, we've been working hard at the EC to make Nashville the most entrepreneurial city in America. We do that by serving entrepreneurs no matter where they are in their journey, whether they're just starting out, they're looking to scale and accelerate, or they've exited and looking to give back to the community. We have a place for you whether it's in our award-winning accelerator programs, our co-working space, or in our mentor and advisor network, we have the resources designed to grow this community so you can grow your business. Learn more at ec.co. In the mid to
1: late 90s, we started thinking of chocolate, nuts, and peanut butter, not as candy, but nutrition.
0: The, the first time we, we kind of hit a lick was with SlimFast. The SlimFast manufacturer suddenly went out of business. They were foreclosed on, and the banks locked the doors, and SlimFast couldn't get product. So we had called on SlimFast, and we told them we could do this, and they said, okay, we're in a jam. We'll let you. We'll, we'll try you out it's real hard to get people to switch, especially with a new company, uh, unproven company. So once SlimFast chose us and let us make product for them, then that kind of gave us a hunting license to go out and talk to other people.
1: Standard was positioned perfectly to start a new
0: business. Kellogg's bought Kashi in 2001. And when they bought the company, they found out that the label claims on the bar weren't true. And so they said, we got to fix this. Well, the company that was making them said, we don't know how. So they ended up coming to us and said, can you make this bar with these claims? We said, yeah, we'll figure it out. And we did. So all of a sudden, we were the manufacturer for Kashi Golene bars started doing contract manufacturing for nutritional bars in 1999. And by 2015, we were making 500 million bars a year. For some companies, they supplied us the ingredients. We assembled them and charged them a assembly fee. And so we charge them 10 cents. And other guys, we'd go out and buy the stuff. And protein bars are pretty expensive the ingredients are, and so we'd charge somebody 78 cents. We defined functional foods as it did more than taste good. It had vitamins, it had minerals, it had protein, it it was an energy bar, it was good for you. We put some fish oil in some products. If people wanted something, we tried to make it, but it it made a claim other than just taste. A Snicker bar tastes good. A cliff bar gives you energy and vitamins and minerals and makes you healthier. A candy bar is not going to be broccoli. You, know, you, you still got to eat your vegetables. Those better-for-you bars, the functional foods,
1: sell for three times the price of a candy bar.
0: So, whatever happened to Goo We bastardized the Goo Goo product because we were making really good money on the contract side. Each month, we would have to cobble together a schedule. So Atkins would order three days. SlimFast would order two days. And if we had a gap, we would make gugus. And then we'd try to just sell them to somebody for whatever we could get for them.
1: Apart from its Nashville nostalgia, nobody knew about them.
0: We could sell the product to the retailer. We weren't very good at getting consumers to come in and buy them. Walmart doesn't sell products. They lease space. If we sold them goo for a nickel and Snickers bars cost 40 cents, but Snickers sold, they'd much rather pay 40 cents for a product that sold than pay a nickel for ours that sat on the shelf and collected dust.
1: But rather than go away, Gugu filled those manufacturing gaps, and there were inherently slow times in the candy business.
0: There were months pretty much every year where we lost money. In the summertime, chocolate doesn't sell well. It's too hot. Uh, Chocolate melts at about 80, 85 degrees. So if you put, if you hold a candy bar in your hand, you'll melt the chocolate. And so it's hard to ship chocolate from one location to another in the summertime. So you end up losing money.
1: In 2008, it wasn't heat that was the problem.
0: It was ice. The U.S. Uh, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency uh, gentleman showed up, guy from ICE. And uh, he asked for all of our employee records for the last three years. And so we gathered them all up, gave them to him. He came back about three weeks later and said, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Well, what's the good news? I have never seen employment records this good. You have documented everything. You have the Social Security card. You have the photo ID. You have everything. It's great. Well, what's the bad news? Well, 256 of your employees' names and Social Security numbers don't match our system. So what do we got to do? Well, they have to go out and get Social Security numbers and names that match and that are documentable, or you have to terminate them. So three weeks later, we terminated 256 employees. And hiring 256 replacement employees and training them was a train wreck. It was a it was extremely difficult and the people that did that my hats off to them. They did a great job. After 1995, I owned 20%, my dad owned uh, 80. He decided to start gifting stock to his kids and his grandkids. So I had 22 shareholders all somehow related to me." Those 22 stockholders
1: included many nieces and nephews. And once Jimmy's dad was no longer involved, maintaining control of the business really came down to getting along with his four siblings, or at least some of them.
0: My dad said, "'Son, if you've got two brothers and two sisters, and as long as you can keep one of them happy, voting with you, you can do anything you want. But if you piss them all off, You deserve whatever you get. I kept telling them how good the business was doing and how we were profitable. They kept wanting dividends. So there was a tension there between the company needing money to grow and their desire to monetize what they had been given. In 2016, there kind of became a a contest, a bake-off, to see who was going to make bars for Quest. And the number one guy in the industry who was making at that time maybe two billion bars went up against us at one-fourth their size. And we ended up winning the process. And we weren't the low price. We just delivered better quality, better service. We were better at what we did. And I think after that, they, they basically said, we're tired of getting beat by those guys. Let's just go and buy them. They called me and said, you know, we're going to bring a checkbook. We want to come down and buy you. And it was, the timing was right. We did not automate our plant. We wanted to stay flexible. If you automate, it gets done a certain way. And basically you you get hemmed into a box. We had 750 people in the plant. 50% doing entry-level jobs, jobs you could learn in 30 minutes. That was not sustainable. It was a good time to sell.
1: And once the numbers started shaking out, the family agreed.
0: It was well over $100 million.
1: Quite a finish. But there was one
0: better sweet note. Uh, My mom had passed away and my dad was not doing well. Last two years of his life, he, uh, he couldn't see and he started getting dementia. And it was really, it, it was, I was not able to share that experience with him. In his wildest dreams, he never thought we could do what we did. <laughs> We knew relatively early on that whoever wanted to buy the functional food business would not want a branded candy business. So early in the 2000s, we put them in two separate businesses. The company that bought us, Hearthside Food Solutions, didn't want the Goo Goo brand. So we kept it, and now my daughter is running it. We've got a store downtown on 3rd Avenue across from the Johnny Cash Museum. And you can go in and you can make your own goo-goo in there. She's selling goo and then she's selling them wholesale to the same businesses we started out in 1982. Generation three. Namely,
1: Jim's daughter, Lori, is running the goo-goo brand.
0: I try to give my daughter as much freedom as my dad gave me. And she's doing a really good job.
1: And it may sound familiar, She's taking a bit of direction from her old man, but doing it her own way.
0: Laurie is 33, and she started working for the company in 2018. First two years, everything was going really good, and then COVID hit. And I never had to deal with anything as difficult as as COVID. The hospitality industry has been decimated but she's done a great job navigating through this and looks like we're coming out of it in really good shape. The next plan of attack is finding a better way to market that unique and memorable name. Gugu's got that name. Everybody's heard it. Come to find out in Korean, Gugu is how you say 99. And 99 is a very lucky number. So they licensed the name for Korean ice cream. And there is about a, there's a $30 million ice cream brand in Korea called Gugu. And we get a royalty for it. I just got a notice that we're going to get the, royal, the quarterly royalty and it's $83,000 this quarter. It's the biggest check we've gotten from Korea. So there is brand equity. We hadn't been able to figure out how to capitalize on it. We've got the store We're gonna start advertising and marketing the product better in a 50 mile radius circle. And once we get decent penetration and sales in that, then we'll go to 100 miles, and then we'll go to 200 miles. Being good in business is not a matter of making every decision correctly. I think it's making five major decisions, getting five things right, and making sure you don't make the one or two mistakes that blow you up. I don't think I'm very different or special than other people. I think I was lucky and got a couple of things right along the path. I was able to identify the company, and I was able to buy it for a price that we could afford, which was basically no cash assuming debt. The second thing I got right was we were able to generate volume relatively quickly, just hustling. The third thing I think I got right was pivoting from being in the candy business to being in the contract manufacturing business and especially in the nutritional bar business. We rode that wave and we got in it at the right time.
1: You've been listening to Circle Back. To subscribe, visit ec.co/slash circleback and follow, rate, and review the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Circle Back is made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Also, thank you to our media partner, Nashville Post. Keep your pulse on all things Nashville business and more by subscribing to their newsletter at NashvillePost.com. And a shout out to our friends at Lightning 100 for supporting the show. A big thanks to our team from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen. Script writing by Demetria Caledimos. And a big thank you to the rest of the EC staff. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back.